your story, definitely, your early bringing up was not a solid Christian home, was it? And guys, that was the darkest moment I've ever had in my life. And the reason it was so dark, I lost hope. From your experience, what do you say to pastors right now? People get you into that problem, and relationships and people get you out of that problem. And now, The Safety Zone. Welcome, folks, to a special episode of The Safety Zone. We're continuing our special series on encouraging survivors of sexual abuse, both in the church and without the church, those who are people of faith and those that are not. And so we've been having special guests to share their stories. And today, Mike, we have just a wonderful guest who has had ministry for over 50 years. And so our guest today is Josh McDowell. And I'm going to read a little bit of Josh's bio because it's long and his ministry has been unbelievable. So I will pull out highlights and Mike, turn it over to you. So in 1961, Josh joined the staff of Campus Crusade for Christ International. And then not long after, he started the Josh McDowell ministry to reach young people worldwide with the truth of the love of Jesus, of course. Josh has addressed more than 46 million people, giving over 27,000 talks in 139 countries. He also has a heart for Russia, had done much work over there and realized how much in need they were. They were sick, homeless, hungry, and that words were not enough. So in 1991, Josh founded Operation Carelift to meet the physical and spiritual needs he discovered in the orphanages, hospitals, schools, and prisons in the former Soviet Union. Since that time, unbelievably, Operation Carelift has delivered humanitarian aid, food, clothing, and medical supplies worth more than $46 million and showing God's love to the Russian people. Josh has received two significant honors from the Russian people because of these efforts. He's the only non-Russian to receive an honorary doctor of pediatrics degree from the Russian Academy of Medicine, and he is also a prestigious member of the Russian Club of Scientists that they have honored him with as well. Just a tremendous ministry. Josh has written and co-authored 151 books in 128 languages, and two of his most popular, and I might add my favorites, More Than a Carpenter, over 27 million copies distributed, and Evidence That Demands a Verdict, named one of the 20th century's top 40 books and one of the 13 most influential books of the last 50 years on Christian thought by World Magazine. Josh has many awards, many honors, but in spite of all this, he'll tell everyone and anyone that his greatest joys and pleasure come from his family. He and his wife, Dodd, have four children and 10 grandchildren. Welcome, welcome, Josh McDowell. So, Mike, oh, I'm going to let you take it from here, but we're just so honored to have you, Josh. Thank you. Well, thank you for the privilege. Yeah, absolutely. What a privilege when to I have heard you I was on, Josh. With you, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he's got a good sense of humor, which we love around here. Yeah, it's a it's an important part of life. It's having a good sense of humor, especially when we're going to talk about such a heavy topic, right? As Melinda mentioned, we've been spending a lot of time really wanting to talk and bring voice to survivors. And there just seems to be a pandemic of child sexual abuse that's happening right now. It's happening inside the church. I come from a very different background and different path than you, Josh. I came from a home 
My dad was an Indiana State police officer. My mother was a victim advocate before they even called them victim advocates. I can remember as a teenager giving up my bedroom for a 14-year-old girl that had been sexually abused. And she was a family I went to church with. Her dad was a school teacher. And it, it really opened my eyes. And it really led me first into a career in law enforcement. And then the last 20 plus years have been doing work through our company, Safe Hiring Solutions, just prevention. And that's really what we want to learn is how do we keep this from happening? So Josh, we just appreciate you coming on and and sharing what you survived because it's really important for other survivors to know they're not alone. You know, uh, I'm 82 years old feel about 40, but I really can't remember <laughs> what 40 felt like. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I'm very fortunate at 82 to have such incredible health. And I just did my three miles this morning oh. and all. But sex abuse today is a lot different than it was back when I was a child. Mm. Back when I was a child, nobody would believe you. If it came out when you were sexually abused, you were almost the perpetrator not the victim, because it was just as much then as there is today. Mm -hmm. But it was hidden, hidden very well, because if you came out publicly, you could really be shamed with it. That's a little bit of difference from back when I was sexually abused. But the thing is, I'm 82, and I still pay the price of it. Mm. Even if you come to Christ, grow in Christ, everything, there's still implications in your life with sex abuse. Mm -hmm. Somehow, I think it must show how critical sex is in a person's life, that being abused can have such implications emotionally, physically, spiritually, everything in your life. And this is why I think in many ways it's a great biblical support to wait until marriage where God intended it, because sex can be great or it can be devastating mm -hmm. or destructive. Yes. And it's according to the principles you follow. Yeah. Yes, and Josh, when you when when you read your bio, right, you would think this is a man who grew up in a solid Christian home. And I'm telling you, I when I watched your movie Undaunted about your life, I, it was incredible. Your story, definitely, your early bringing up was not a solid Christian home, was it? <laughs> Anything but. My mother, when I was a little kid, used to take me and drop me off at the Congregational Church. She never went, my dad never even talked about her or anything, but they always dropped me off there. <laughs> it was probably, in my area, it was the worst church to be dropped off at. <laughs> I often say, in spite of what the pastor taught, I still believed in God. <laughs> that was, I mean, it was a social club. Yeah. And so it had no effect upon me whatsoever. Yeah. Now tell us about, because your dad was an alcoholic and it was just riveting to me in the docudrama that, that was done. You had a plethora of things going on, including the sexual abuse. Can you just tell us a little bit about your childhood? Well, I grew up on a farm. Our driveway was actually one mile from Union City, Michigan, the city center. And so it was almost like living in the city, but being on the farm. And when I was six years old, my parents hired a man by the name of Wayne Bailey. Mm -hmm. My mother weighed 348 pounds. She was huge. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't so much that she had poor eating habits or anything. She had a, I think it was a thyroid problem or something, where if you just looked at food, you gained weight. Today, they have a pill mm -hmm. and it takes care of it. But my mom didn't have it. She was huge. So she couldn't move very fast. I think the movie showed that. Yes. 
the most realistic character they picked of all the characters in the movie, the one from my mother was the ideal one. Mm. She imaged my mother, and boy, it was hard to watch yeah. <laughs> because of the memories it brought back. But my mother and dad were brought up in Idaho, in the countryside. They never went beyond second grade, either one of them. They were good people, but weak, I think weak people. Mm -hmm. And when I was six years old, they hired Wayne Bailey. And every time my mother would leave home, she'd make this statement. Now, you obey Wayne. You do everything Wayne tells you to do. And let me tell you, young man, if you're disobedient, you're going to get a thrashing when I get home. Mm. And you did not want a thrashing from my mother. Yeah. She put all four, 348 <laughs> pounds into it. I'll tell you, I'll tell you that. That hurt. Yeah. So that but would not be something six, you'd seven, want. Eight. Yes. Yeah. But what do you do at six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old? You do what Wayne Bailey tells you. Mm. And. Every time my parents would go away or go out to the fields working, my mother would go downtown shopping or something, he always abused me, sometimes three, four times a week. Mm. And he would always start on my shoulder mm. and rub it and then go down my body. And one of the implications for me today, people all the time will come up and put their hand on your shoulder. Mm. Now, that doesn't bother me, but most men, they don't know they do it. They start to rub you a little. They don't know they're doing it. They just go like this, good buddy, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, boy, I immediately grabbed that person's arm and, and push him away. And, and some people have really been offended by it. But all those memories flash back in my mind when somebody yeah. puts their hand on my shoulder and then they start start to rub it. And it's just a it's a reaction and it's not a conscious reaction that I have. And I, I think some people think I'm a big jerk. Well, I probably am. So I started out at six, seven years old, and you don't have a lot of choice in a lot of things at six, seven years old. Yeah. And I remember the one time my mother, I must have been 10, 11 years old, and I finally got up the courage to tell my mother. Oh, I, I mean, guys, I was scared. Mm. I don't think I faced anything in life as scared as I was that day. My mother was out in the kitchen doing the dishes, looking out the window. I came up behind her, and it took me a little bit. I started to cry at all, and I told her what this man was doing to me. And she turned around, and boy, was she mad at me. Mm -hmm. And she said, I did not raise you, young man. She would shake her finger like this. I did not raise you, young man, to be a liar. And you know where liars go. Mm. And she made me go out and back, break a switch off the willow tree, pull the leaves off the switch, and then give it to her and take my shirt off. And for 30 minutes... She whipped me until it hurt so badly, I just kept screaming. I lied, I lied, I lied. Mm. And guys, that was the darkest moment I've ever had in my life. And the reason it was so dark, I lost hope. Mm. Because who else could mm. I go to? Mm -hmm. No one. Yes. No one. Church wasn't really a part of our family or anything, and mm. I never dream of going to a pastor, especially the one of, the, of that church. Mm. I lost all hope. Mm. And... I used to get in trouble with, this is so dumb. <laughs> I would get in trouble at school. So they would bench me and I wouldn't have to go home right away to be sexually abused. Well, and day after day, I would, I feel bad about it now. I'd mistreat a girl or something mm. right in front of the teacher. And they'd make you stay after school for an hour and write 300, 500 times mm -hmm. on the board. I will not hurt so-and-so, et cetera. And that was a welcome relief to me. It wasn't a punishment. It was a rescue. So then I didn't have to go home. Mm. 
and face Wayne Bailey. Mm. And the scary part was when I had friends over. Mm. I didn't have a lot of friends over because I knew Wayne would try to abuse them. And so it was so hard. I would take friends aside when they'd meet Wayne. I'd say to him, now, I don't want you to ever be alone with him. Never be alone with him. And mm. then I was sharing my testimony in Union City, Michigan. Two or three of the kids from my class came up and said, now I understand oh. why you said don't ever be alone with Wayne Bailey. Mm-hmm. But that was the environment that I grew up in and afraid of being home, afraid to be left in the house with Wayne when my mother would go out to work, go shopping or anything. And that follows with me today. Yes. And then my father became a wino. Mm -hmm. He drank two, three, sometimes four bottles of wine a day. And when he was sober, he, as much as I can remember, he was a nice guy. Mm. And when he was drunk... I could handle him. It was that right in between starting to drink mm. and being drunk mm. that he was mean. And I would watch him. We'd be milking the cows. We lived in a farm, had, I don't know, about 70, 80 cows. And whenever he'd leave the barn, I knew he was going to get a, some wine. So I'd go and I'd watch where he would go and where he would hide his bottles. This is not something I'm proud of, but I, I didn't know anything else as a child. Mm-hmm. I cannot tell you, constantly, year after year, I go out and find his wine bottles and urinate in them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in the movie, when my father was standing the other side of the pickup truck, reached in, pulled out a bottle, went, and went. Yep. That's what that was. Yep. And then he mm -hmm. drank it anyway. And I remember when he found out that I'd been doing that, oh, he let me have it and said, how can any loving son ever do that to a father? And I reacted as just a little kid. I said, how can a father do to a kid what you have done to me? Mm, mm -hmm. And one time there was a tavern called Duffy's Tavern in Union City, Michigan. And that's where my father would go. And there was a law in Michigan that if the wife, the spouse, either way, the wife or the husband gave a directive to a bar, they could not serve their spouse. Oh, mm. Interesting. It was against the law to serve them. Well, they went ahead and served it anyway in Union City, Michigan, a place. And I took a small axe and went down there, and I did thousands of dollars of damage. <laughs> I just I smashed everything, mirrors on the wall, uh, the bar, everything. And they called the police and everything, but they 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 didn't charge any, didn't charge me with anything because they knew my mother would turn around and sue them for everything. Yeah, yeah. because of what they were doing. So I had a. Yeah. I had a free ride with that. Oh, Josh, in your in your film, you were a tough guy. <laughs> the hurt, I know, was there, and the the anger was interesting too, which was was all understandable. But boy, the scenes with your dad and it, I think in tying him tying him up when you had company coming over if he was drunk in the barn, but just also to your dad that when he was drunk, the domestic violence towards your mom. And I, I believe you witnessed some of that. And how could you not be angry? Anger was a big part, wasn't it, of your response? It wasn't so much that I was a tough person. Mm -hmm. For me, it was survival. Yeah. And when we'd have friends over, course my father would be drunk so i'd take him out the barn sometimes i'd pull him he'd be on his back and i'd take his two feet and i'd pull him out to the barn i'd throw him on the floor in the pen where the cows that had their calves and i'd go get a rope and he was just a small man mm -hmm. but i was only a little kid mm -hmm. 
but I'd get my shoulder into his chest and I'd push him up against the boards and I put his <laughs> I put his arms through the board so the board came right through here. Mm. And then I'd tie his two arms together and I was just so angry. I'd go around behind, take another rope and make a hangman's noose out of it. Hmm. And then I'd put it around his neck and pull it real tight. Then I'd put the other end around his feet and I'd pull that rope as tight as I could to his head would come all the way over that top board, wrap it around his feet and then knot it. And I would do that so often. I'd do it like 5, 5.30 at night, right after we finished milking or six. And I'd leave him there until 4, 5, 6 the next morning. And I remember the first time, I can vividly remember it. I went out there and I was kind of excited. And when I got there, I was so disappointed, discouraged, because he was still alive. Mm. All I ever wanted as a child was for my father to quit hurting my mother and quit hurting one of my sisters and myself. Mm. So for me, it was survival. Yes. So between dealing with my mother, and I, I couldn't understand all of her weight at that time. I feel horrible the way I said things and did things, but I didn't know any better mm. uh, at that time. Whenever she would take me in August, we'd go to Battle Creek to go school shopping for clothes. Mm. And my mother had to know I did this. I was always watching, hoping none of my friends saw me mm. with my mother. I, I would be embarrassed if they did. I'd be shamed, which is horrible. And I knew my mother had to know that. Mm -hmm. And I played just about every sport. I was exceptionally good in basketball, but quite well in football. And my mother came to every single football game and never saw me play one play mm. because she was so fat that she couldn't get out and stand on her feet. Mm. She couldn't sit on the bleachers. She couldn't find a comfortable chair she could take with her and put down and sit on. So she would sit in a car. Well, in a little tiny town, they only had little bleachers that held maybe 100 people. So people stood around the field. So there's always two or three levels of people in front of my mother in the football field. Mm -hmm. And so three or four times a half, I would come out of a play and I'd run over to the car. And always my mother was crying, just weeping hard sitting in the car. And mm -hmm. I wish I'd understood then that I understand now. But... She had, I can actually say, she had a horrible life, but a lot of it she caused herself. Mm. She manhandled my father. She would throw mm. him around. I, I always say, my mother drove my father to drink. Mm -hmm. She didn't know what else to do, I don't think. Mm -hmm. She had no education, whatever. So that was a lot of my home life. Yeah. And you had a, a point where you just really hated God, right? Oh, yeah. I thought God hated me. Because of the parents he gave me. I lived up in Julian at this time, years later. Julian, California is way up in the mountains, the oldest town in California, outside of San Diego. And we were living there, and I was sharing my feelings and hurts about my family. And someone said to me, well, you just have got to forgive your mom and dad, or you'll pay the price. I didn't think too much about that. But we had moved, and I went back to Julian, and in the old hotel there, they have a little tiny, it's about the size of my dining room right here, cottage. It's called the Honeymoon Suite. Whew, what a misnomer. And <laughs> I was staying there, and I'll never forget, there was a little desk in the corner. I was sitting there, and 
I was thinking about my mom and dad, and this is the way it reasoned. And this had to be the Holy Spirit. And I know as a Christian, you're not supposed to say this, but I said to myself, I like myself. I like who I am. Gosh, I like the way I treat people. I like the way I do things and all. And I know as a Christian, you're not supposed to like yourself, even though the Bible tells you to love yourself, but Christians just don't get it. (laughs) And God had to be working in my life because I, I started to reason, well, who made me who I am? And I realized it was my mom and dad, whether good, bad, or evil. Mm-hmm. That the two people that God used to make me who I was, was my mom and dad. And next thing I knew, I don't even remember walking from the desk to the bed. I went over the bed, got down on my knees, and I thanked God. I sincerely thanked God for a fat mother, so overweight and often abusive. And I thanked God for an alcoholic, abusive father. Mm. And I thank God for using them to make me who I was. Mm. And when I stood up, and a few hours later I left that honeymoon suite, I was a different person. Mm. I'd released that anger and all that I had, and I'd given it over to God. And it was like I was renewed inside. Yes. Inside my gut and inside my mind. And ever since then, I've looked at my parents in a whole different line. Mm. Now, I wouldn't want my children to have the kind of parents that I had. I wouldn't want any child to. But I thank God I had the parents I had, or I wouldn't be who I am. And I like who I am. And that's kind of a predicament or a a contradiction, whatever. But I wish my mom and dad were alive that I could go and apologize and ask their forgiveness. Mm. And now, knowing what I know, minister to them. Yes, yes. That's a powerful testimony. (laughs) You have uncovered so many things in 20 minutes. One of the things, Josh, that struck me very early on, you were talking about not wanting to come home from school. Mm -hmm. And back in 1994, I was a detective in Nashville, Tennessee. I helped start what became the largest police-based domestic violence program in the country. And I've spoken all over the world on this program, and I've told people in the training over and over again, you think your children are going to school and they can't wait to come home at night, but there are a vast number of kids every single day that are, they're in every sport. When you said you played every sport, I'm thinking, all right, overachievers involved in every after club activity, anything to keep from going home. That was and, me. and then you look at, you talk about the, yours happened 70 years ago. And then we think we've made progress and we made progress back in the nineties when I started this program, but the last two years Mm. with this pandemic and we've sent everybody home and we've isolated families and we've isolated children, Mm -hmm. domestic violence murders have gone up 1600, you know, 160% in some States and child sexual abuse has gone way up. And now churches are opening their doors And we've got this perfect storm. And that's what we're trying just to really help pastors to understand as we're opening back up or have opened, we're inheriting a huge increase in violence and abuse. And so from your experience, what do you say to pastors right now? Because there's a lot coming back through those doors and a lot of people that are hurting and been hurt and undetected. I would say to pastors, get educated. 
Mm -hmm. Do your homework. There are seminars you can go to learn about sex abuse, learn why it takes place and all. You owe it to your people because you might think you have the most marvelous church in the world. You might, but you have sex abuse going on in your church, period. Yes. So I would say, one, learn about it. Mm -hmm. Don't be ignorant. Second, preach about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Preach about it. Preach about it in a way that people will feel free to come to you. Yes. Or come to one of the staff. Don't do a yes. condemnation. Mm-hmm. Do do a, a talk of compassion, of, of hurt for not just the person being abused, but the abuser. Mm-hmm. My heart goes out to abusers. Think what it must be where you're just driven to go. I, I heard this morning on television where this, or radio, this famous man was just arrested. You'd probably even know his name and all. And he would fly, I think it was to Florida, just to have sex with kids. And he would abuse them and beat them and all. Guys and girls started nine years old. Mm. Then he'd fly back, I think it was to California. And then after a while, it must have been such a drive and everything. He would go back and forth. And finally, the police just arrested him Mm. for that. So my heart goes out to the abuser as well as the abused. And so I would say to the pastor, have a seminar. Bring a pro in. Mm-hmm. Have a seminar on how to deal with those who've been sexually abused, how to see it, how to catch it, to know what's going on and all. And have a seminar for your people. Mm-hmm. And you've got to be careful how you introduce a seminar like that. You want to make sure as a pastor you introduce it as if you really want to help others. Etc. Because mm-hmm. if you say, well, if you've been sexually abused or anything, come to the seminar, nobody's going to come. Because <laughs> everyone that walks into that seminar, yeah. the whole congregation will say, oh, they've been sexually abused. They've been sexually abused. Where great percentages, maybe they weren't, whatever. And so you can't say it's for those who've been sexually abused, for those who want to help and understand sexual abuse in order to help others. Mm-hmm. And then people won't have that fear to walk in to the training session. Yes. And you probably need two or three training sessions to do that. But pastor, you owe it to your people and to help equip them. You see, you need to have laymen in your church, men and women, that you have trained or you've had them trained so that you can connect them with people that are hurting from abuse. That is what is so important. In Union City, Michigan, I wish I could think of his name. When I was about 15 years old, a new doctor came to town. And I don't know how, we became very good friends. Mm. He had no children. And I think he looked at me as a son. Mm. And he was only there maybe two or three years. But in that time, I think God used him to keep me sane and not going insane Mm -hmm. at that age. And I look back and I think part of my healing and and getting away from and dealing with my life started with that doctor Mm. who took time with me, listened to me hurt with me and would speak directly into my life. Mm. And it wasn't so much scripture. I can't remember if he was a Christian or not, because I wasn't at that time. But he sure spoke truth into my life Mm. uh, as a doctor. And I am forever indebted to him. And if I ever can't get back to you and say, I'm going to find out who he was. Yeah. And he's still alive. Probably is because he was probably 15, 20 years older than me. And I'm 82. Mm. So that'd make him 204. No. Uh, <laughs> and so I'd like to, I'd like to thank you. Oh, for helping me. absolutely. But I, I'll tell you this. 
you get into that problem through people. Mm-hmm. You come out of that problem by people, with people. People get you into that problem, and relationships and people get you out of that problem. Mm. I don't think too many people ever beat it without somebody taking the concern for them and working with them and helping them, ministering to them, being there for them, and all. Josh, I was going to say, and you, you rolled right into it, just as you did for pastors. We've talked to a lot of survivors. Some some are believers that were abused in the church and have walked away. Some have come back, but a lot haven't. And then some are not believers that, that of course, have a lot of bitterness and yeah. difficulties. What, what, what would you say to survivors of abuse? What, what, what would be your words to them? This can sound so shallow, but it's so real. Don't go it alone. Mm-hmm. Mm. Don't go it alone. You probably won't make it. Mm. Find someone you trust that's older than you. If you're a woman, find a woman. If you're a man, find a man. If you're a woman, do not be counseled by a man in this area because so often you end up having sex with him. Mm. And so if you're a man, a young man, find an older man who seems to have an incredible walk with Christ, mm-hmm. has his family together and a good relationship with his children, and ask him if you could share something with him. And even ask him, now not everyone can do it, but ask him, could you mentor me? Mm-hmm. Could you maybe for six months spend some time with me each week and help me get through this? Most men would jump on and say yes, mm-hmm. especially if they have a good family themselves and a wonderful relationship with their kids. And so don't go it alone. And then realize there is hope. There is hope. Mm. If you don't think there is, think of my life. Think of so many others Mm -hmm. who we've made it through it. And I've made it through it for years. Mm. Still haunts me, still haunts me, but it does not control me. And Mm. I am not a victim. And I would say to a person, Mm. don't look at yourself as a victim because then you're defeated. This is not something you caused or you did. You are not at fault for it. And I never looked at myself as a victim. I am an overcomer. Mm. If there's a problem, I'll go through it, over it, under it, or around it by God's grace. And I'm not a victim. As soon as you think of yourself as a victim, you fall prey to victimizers. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then... You all have this feeling, oh, I struggle with this, that I could never have a happy marriage. Mm. I could never have a good sex life. I felt like I'd been ruined. And that's that's a false thinking. You can overcome it. Josh, we're laying a foundation for raising awareness and church's understanding and what isolation means. You were isolated with Wayne Bailey and how we can prevent this so it doesn't happen. I just want to say thanks for sharing this. Obviously, millions of people have heard you speak, but but so many that have been through this, they think they're all by themselves, that nobody else has ever been through this, and they get programmed to believe that way, and it it keeps them from speaking out. I'm the only one, and I'm not going to go to the police if I think that, and you're not going to believe me. And you just, you you hit all of the important things as Mm -hmm. those of us that are on the other side, 
working to help and prevent this, that we listen, that we believe. One of our trainers, Eli Molina from Texas, he's interviewed thousands of children, forensic interviews. He said, I've only had one that lied to me out of thousands. They don't lie. They're telling the truth. Believe them. And so I just, I I thank you immensely for taking time out of your day to come on and Mm -hmm. just share with our listeners how we can stop this. I wish your listeners would get a copy of this. Play it to your children. Mm. Starting when they're about six years old, seven, oh, that's too young. (laughs) Look, Mm. most sex abuse starts before nine years old. Mm -hmm. And you need two or three years to build in a spiritual antibody to be in. And share this with them. Yes. And ask them if they know any of their friends have been hurt like this mm-hmm. or if they ever. And what you could do is use this to help educate your own children and finish up your conversation with them and listen to them and all. And don't judge them. Just listen to them and say, you know, son or daughter, if anything, if anyone ever, ever approaches you or touches you inappropriately, please come to mom and dad. Mm-hmm. And we will love you, and we will walk through it with you. Mm. This is why it's so important when you're a parent and somebody comes home and says, Mom at church came out that so-and-so father sexually abused him. Be careful how you respond, because how you respond will often determine if your child will come to you if it ever happens to them. Yes. Or especially when you're watching TV and say, there's a young girl gets pregnant. And the, oh, the worst thing for the parents. That's so wrong. You know what God thinks of that? That is horrible. Where were the parents with that? You're sitting there with your child saying, if you ever get pregnant or you get a girl pregnant, don't come to me because mm-hmm. I'm going to judge you. Yeah. And so as a parent, be very careful yes. how you ever, in an explosive negative way, criticize something. It's better to sit down saying, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. And all show a compassion for the child and then say, This is why God's word is so true. Mm-hmm. When God's word says da 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 about sexual behavior and all. And you can use situations like that to minute to prepare your own children yeah. to be proactive. Yes. And we know that God just look what he did in your life, Josh. And it it may be just in closing, just a final word of encouragement to those of how the Lord changed your life. He can change others, correct? Yes. My daughter, one of my daughters, I got three daughters and a son, 11 grandkids. And one of my daughters the other day said, yeah, I was telling somebody else when I was just a little kid, my dad taught me if some boy tries to touch me or anything else, hit him hard in the groin. (laughs) (laughs) I remember doing it. I mean, I told my kids that. Go for the groin hard. And they will stop. (laughs) Now that's a real dad. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you all. Thanks for allowing me this privilege to be with you. And maybe I I pray it will help a lot of folks. Absolutely. And And I just want to say, if anyone hasn't watched Undaunted. Oh my goodness. Please do. You can go to josh.org backslash undaunted. I'm sure it's on Amazon Prime and, and everywhere else. It's always on Amazon. Everything's on Amazon. But please go get that because it really gives you, oh, just a full breath. It's called Undaunted. Yes, Undaunted. And it gives you a full breath 
of his his life and really what the Lord did and, and just tremendous more than we could of course cover in this in this one podcast so please do that yeah, I wish more parents played that movie to their 10 year olds yes thanks Josh God bless you all thank you thank you very take much care. Josh take care this podcast is sponsored by Safe Hiring Solutions, a nationwide company that offers comprehensive, industry-leading, real-time security solutions for companies, schools, churches, and nonprofit organizations.